Hey, it's Brian Cook, your host here. Wanted to let you know we now have t-shirts. Would you like to support the podcast? Have you noticed that I can't get a sponsor because this show's too filthy? Hey, it'd be great if some people ordered shirts. They're great-looking shirts. Go to estoymerchandise.com, E-S-T-O-Y merchandise.com. You'll find competitive erotic fanfiction on the right-hand side. Click on that, and you can order shirts. This men's and women's sizes. It's a great design by my buddy Mark Palm in Seattle. He does all of our amazing poster art. Uh, please support the podcast. It would help us out a ton. That's estoymerchandise.com. E-S-T-O-Y merchandise.com. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hello and welcome to episode 150 of the Competitive Erotic Fan Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Cook, and you've found the Internet's number one most trusted source for Muppet boners and horny loners. Upcoming shows include November 15th at the Virgil in Los Angeles, December 26th at Great Scott in Boston, and closing out the year at December 28th at Union Hall in Brooklyn. Today's show was recorded at the Virgil on October 18th, 2015, and it features Jim Hamilton, Chris Charpentier, Chris Fairbanks, and Paul Goebel reading pieces they wrote based upon audience suggestions. So, first you'll hear them draw topics, then we will fast forward into the future to hear the finished pieces. Enjoy. Interior 30 Rockefeller Center, Monday, November 2nd, 2016. It's an awkward day at the beginning of an awkward week. The vibe in the air is like someone brought up your uncle's suicide attempt at Thanksgiving. The fact that if they want to keep them this week, their jobs are to make a racist, bloviating misogynist look good is making everyone uncomfortable. Well, everyone except Keenan Thompson, who was literally just glad to have somewhere to go every week. <laughs> Mushmouthed weekend update host Michael Shea paces nervously around his office because he needs this job. Beady-eyed, privileged puppet Colin Jost flips through a J. Crew catalog, fully relaxed because his family probably owns Hyannis, Massachusetts. A few weeks earlier, Pete Davidson had made a really good point about how funny everyone thought Donald Trump was until he became an actual contender for president, and that America shouldn't pay attention to him just because it's funny. You know, when he said that on Saturday Night Live two weeks ago? You know, that guy that's now hosting this week's show. But hey, they did that tepid gun control bit with Amy Schumer a few weeks back, right? So brave, so brave. Anyway, <laughs> the entire cast and writing staff of SNL crams into Lauren Michaels' office for some reason if that mediocre James Franco documentary is to be believed. <laughs> Look, we can all pretty much surmise how it's going to go. There will be a discussion over what recurring characters he could play the other one of. <laughs> There will be a pitch for a sketch where Taryn Killam plays Donald Trump opposite Donald Trump that technically no one has to write because it already exists in the ether. <laughs> There's an idea that's reverse engineered around some pun on Trump's name that some new writer probably wrote in a 6 a.m. Adderall haze which would require the winking charisma of a John Hamm type to pull off. And why the fuck hasn't he hosted the Halloween episode since 2010? I digress. <laughs> There will be a lot of discussion about how to handle the whole Donald Trump thinks Mexicans are all rapists thing, and even more discussion about which man should play the crazed female Hispanic voter from that very real, organic, and not at all staged moment at that Trump rally. Lauren will agree it would be better to have a Latino portray the woman, so naturally he'll call Horacio Sanz. 
It will be the only time Horatio's phone rings in the next six years. He's probably dead. The woman will be portrayed by Pete Davidson, the guy who got on TV, even though his eyes don't blink at the same time, something you probably can't bring up because his dad was in 9-11. And look, we basically know how the show's gonna end up going, too. There's gonna be an absolute shit monologue. There'll be a sketch where Trump owns a wig store where every wig looks just like his hair, and I fucking guarantee you I'm right. There will maybe even be one truly inspired bit that will actually make it on the air. It will definitely be pre-recorded and not performed live, which is ironic that pre-taped segments are the only safe bet on a show with the word live in its title. You'll recount this sketch, probably a spot-on commercial parody, to a friend, and that friend will scoff, I haven't watched SNL in like 20 years, because that's the new I don't even own a TV. (laughs) Shut up. Also, there's no classic cast of SNL. There are just the years of your life before you had to pay for your own health insurance. Dan Aykroyd was terrible. The point is, some of the writing will be very good, but delivered with less care than Domino's Pizza. Much of the writing will be a train wreck because this show should be a half hour long with no musical guest. However, if there were no musical guests in this particular week, it would rob viewers of what will likely be the highlight of the episode, which will be when Donald Trump, a man who tweeted from an Aerosmith concert three weeks ago, has to part his rosebud prolapse of a mouth to read a cue card that says, Ladies and gentlemen, Fetty Wap. Whoever the fuck is the musical guest I didn't google it, I don't care There will be a Draft Kings spoof And a real Coles commercial that's so bad It takes a second to realize it's not a spoof Update will continue trying to be the Daily Show And failing Hopefully Riblet appears and saves the day Because Bobby Moynihan is the most underrated performer In the history of SNL Yeah. Fuck yeah Keenan Thompson will try not to laugh at how funny he thinks his one voice is. <laughs> Leslie Jones won't be as good as everyone wants her to be. Yeah. Taryn Killam will save a mediocre sketch with the pure force of will because that's his job on this show. <laughs> and Kate McKinnon will get more laughs using just her eyes than most people on there will get by saying any fucking words. Also, Jay Farrow will do Jay-Z for some reason and Vanessa Bear will have teeth. <laughs> stand around at the end and clap awkwardly and sway to the music. True story, Norm MacDonald always tried to leave the building and be home before this played on television because he thought it was gross that every week SNL congratulated themselves on air for making a TV show like they had just won the fucking presidency themselves. Anyway, after the show, Donald Trump will make his way into Lorne's office. Briefly sexually harass Lorne's secretary as she shows him in, Lorne will pour them both a drink. And he'll say... Mm, Yes, Mr. Trump. Thank you again for joining us this week. As I'm sure you're well aware, there was a great deal of controversy over you hosting the show. But I believe at the end of the day that over 40 years on the air, we're not doing our jobs as satirists if we only skewer the right wing. I mean, at a certain point, aren't we just preaching to the choir if week in and week out we take shots at you and Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz while the left gets away unscathed. I mean, if you think about it, there are a few things in 2015 less brave or edgy than being a liberal voice in comedy. I mean, sure, we had some fun with Hillary and her voting record on gay marriage a few weeks back, but then we softened that blow by trotting out Daryl Hammond's tired Bill Clinton impression to immediately deflect the joke. (laughs) 
Anyway, sorry I rambled. The real point is this. Our ratings tonight were through the roof, and I think money is just great. <laughs> Donald, what I'm getting at is I'm a little toilet baby. Will you feed me my poop lunch? <laughs> Then he will lay on his back while Donald Trump squats and shits a hot, runny dump all over Lorne Michaels' face and chest and down his throat, and they both come. The end. Thank you guys so much. Uh, please welcome your round two comics will be writing based upon your suggestions. Jim Hamilton, Chris Fairbanks, Paul Goble, and Chris Charpentier. Alright, here's how this party's gonna work. I will draw one suggestion for each of them. If they like that suggestion, they can take it and run with it. If they don't like it, I will draw a second one, and then you will all vote on which one they have to take. We're gonna start with Mr. Chris Charpentier. Step up with Mike Chris. Clap your hands for Chris Charpentier. Chris, your first option is hook. I'll take it. Alright, Chris Charpentier. Keep it going for Mr. Jim Hamilton. I said keep it going for Jim Hamilton. Your first option is my so-called life. Uh, take, take it. No, I'll, I'll try the second one. All right. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, this is an odd coincidence. Your second option is La Bamba, which is a movie, but also a trombone player who was a special guest the last time you did this show. Yeah, look it up. He did Charlie Brown's mom's voice, and it was amazing. Uh, so, who wants to hear my so-called life? One of you was literally yelling for it a minute ago, and now you're not even clapping for it. The segment's awesome. The movie La Bamba. Yeah. All right. Jim Hamilton. You can do that, too. You can do that. Or you can just be about the song. Paul Goble, ladies and gentlemen. Paul Goble. Hi. Paul, your first option is Elton John. Yeah, we got to go with the second one. All right. Uh, Gumby is your second option. <laughs> Who wants to hear Elton John? Yeah. Who wants to hear Gumby? Yeah. Gumby, damn it. Paul Gold, we'll let him hear it. Finally, Mr. Chris Fairbanks. Clap your hands for Chris. Yeah. Chris, your first option is Grace Under Fire. Brett <laughs> <laughs> Butler. Yep, yeah, sitcom, yeah. Brett Butler. Uh, let's hear this. Yeah. Let's hear uh, America's Got Talent is your second suggestion. So who wants to hear Grace Under Fire? Who wants to hear America's Got Talent? Chris Fairbanks, America's Got Talent. That's a tiebreaker. I called it. Uh, let me uh, make a round of applause for your round two competitors. Paul Goble, ladies and gentlemen. Any second now, but there he is. Paul. Thanks, buddy. You did great. Uh, I thought I was going to fall out and break a hip. And Just I was not. hoping for it. All right. Uh, so mine was Gumby. Uh, here we go. He was once a little green slab of clay. A slab of clay with big dreams. Dreams of making it in Hollywood. All he needed was a chance. Donnie Gumbinelli had the face. 
Johnny Gumbinelli had the kind of face that made girls giggle, made women wiggle, and he once got a second look from the tough guy Rob Riggle. <laughs> Hollywood loved him. Uh, it wasn't long before he was partying all night at the hottest clubs, meeting all the right people. His career took off like a rocket. Guest spots on sitcoms, a recurring role on Green Arrow. <laughs> he even did a spread in Playgirl magazine. <laughs> Nothing could stop Donnie Gumbinelli. Until one night, Donnie met the man who would change his life. Pat Pilzer was an entitled rich kid. Everyone called him Prickly because uh, he was easy to piss off and he had a wicked skin condition. <laughs> um, Donnie and Prickly became best friends, and they were inseparable. Whenever they went out on the town, drinking and carousing and picking up girls. You see, Danny was the bait, and Prickly was the closer. After one wild night of clubbing, the two went back to Prickly's house in Silver Lake with two young women and uh, nothing good on their mind. They each went to their separate rooms, and nature took its course. But in the morning... Danny was awakened by Prickly, bursting into the guest room, screaming, Oh, shit! She's dead! She's dead! <laughs> Danny, rubbing the sleep from his eyes, runs into Prickly's room and sees a lifeless body of a young girl who can't be more than 16 years old. Before he can even react, her friend rushes in and starts to scream. That's when a panicked Prickly hits her in the side of the head with a really big hammer. <laughs> Looking around at the mess he's made, Prickly realizes he only has one choice, and he has to make a phone call to the one, one man that can help them, Jonah the Horse Pokington. <laughs> when Pokington arrives, he's all business. He immediately begins to clean up the, the blood in the girls. <laughs> Um, the girls, says Brickley, the girls are dead, we're so fucked. Pokington, of course, ignores this and continues to clean up, but he seems interested in Danny for some reason. Hey, man, I'm talking to you, says Brickley. That's when Pokington slowly stands up, turns around, grabs Brickley by the throat, and slowly forces him down on his knees. As he does that, he begins to unzip his pants, and he says to Brickley, the next time you open your mouth, you're going to taste an Asian kid's asshole. That's what he said. That's what he said. I think it's because he was banging an Asian kid, didn't clean up. That's what he was trying to do. He was going to make Prickly suck his... I'm sure there's a term for that. Any gay guys, I'm sure there's a term for that. Let me know. Or just show me. Um, after the cleanup is all done, a relieved Prickly gently asks, um, Pokington, So, uh, what do we owe you? You, he says, you give me ten grand, you never call me again. He then turns to Danny, and he says, uh, As for you, you know why they call me the horse? As Prickly exits his home to get a cashier's chick for ten grand, he tries to drown out the screams from behind him. The screams of Danny's virgin asshole being torn and ripped in multiple places in order to accommodate the enormous cock of the horse. Prickly closes the door 
tries to take comfort in knowing that while he'll probably never see Danny again, if he's got a heart, then Danny will always be a part of him. Uh, thank you. Bogolo. Thanks, buddy. Who else is ready? What do we got around to? Chris Fairbanks, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Chris Fairbanks. Captain Chris. Captain Chris Fairbanks. And wear a comedy hat. Should I sit? Nope. Okay. <laughs> about Americans got talent. <laughs> when Nick Cannon first got the news he would host America's Got Talent, he was ecstatic. Just off the heels of his offensive yet not funny no homo comedy special, <laughs> he wanted to tell the people he loves the most the good news. R. Kelly and his wife Mary Carrie. Sorry. <laughs> His call to Kelly opened with gurgling sounds as usual, and then he remembered that, uh, just, oh, that life's, yeah, I fucking did it, sorry, I'm doing bad. Okay, then he remembered about the switcheroo, where now he likes to take it rather than give. Even as a living room statue of him with one of those classic babies peeing. It went to message. So he called Mariah and opened with his regular line, I'm going to lay so much wood on you, which sounds weird to us, but she knew what it meant. As all of you may have noticed, her breast enhancement that she got early in her career has a four-inch gap between each breast, putting each one closer to her armpit areas. Which worked great for Nick and why their relationship worked. His dick is shaped exactly like a two by four. It's a perfect fit. At the first day of work, Nick walks into the writer's room where he finds Howie Mandel with a condom on his bald head. Oh, ha ha, he laughed. I remember this bit. But Howie wasn't doing a bit. He realized this when Howard Stern, another judge, and a fan of obsolete media, terrestrial radio, and hater of podcasts, began slowly getting lowered by riders from the rafters on the same strings and pulleys and harnesses he used when doing the never-funny Fartman character on 1989's MTV Movie Awards, the year he peaked. <laughs> a network incidentally now owned by Cannon Howie situated himself in the center of the room waiting patiently for Howard to slowly be lowered making sure his head condom was snug a feeling of euphoria washed over him partly because he is asphyxiating but also in anticipation caused by Seeing Howard in those assless chaps, he chuckled, Are there any with an ass on them? He thought of chaps. <laughs> he stood rigidly as Howard Stern's ass lowered. Cannon, meanwhile, started to sweat. He was afraid he'd like what he was about to see. Not ready for the lifestyle change. You know. 
Because he's homophobic. <laughs> In that moment, Nick realized he also... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. In that moment, he, uh, that being Howie Mandel, realized he also liked watching the videos of... Uh, no, fuck, you know what? It's hard. I have bad penmanship. It is Nick. We're back to Nick. In that moment, Nick Cannon realized he also... Like watching those videos R. Kelly sent him, peeing on those children. And then he recalled that evening he spent watching, on a loop, seals slapping around that Victoria's Secret model he was dating. It was abusive to her. A lot of you don't know that, but it was. My friend was their nanny. <laughs> that Victoria's Secret model he can't think the name of. But I was excited to work with because of her boobs and sharp wit. I guess I'm a freak, he said out loud, just as Howard Stern's rectal sphincter engulfed all of Howie Mandel's talentless bald head. He watched for several minutes, Howard writhing around when he thought, that's funny, Howie does the fist bump greeting instead of a handshake. I thought because of germs, but here he is, with his entire face in a radio DJ's colon. He chuckled. I guess that does just prove he's an elitist asshole. In that moment, the writers who had just lowered him on the gurney took a moment from masturbating in the rafters to swiftly yank Howard off of Howie. Have you guys ever seen the Sherwin-Williams paint store logo? It's a globe covered with paint. Howard's 90% coffee diarrhea oozed over the washed-up comic's face, covering his eyes and entering his mouth, which was squealing with glee, like Nebbini and Deliverance. Stern was pulled back into the rafters. He seemed to be in a lot of pain, which is why he was grinning ear to ear. He loved that shit. He yelled out even, I'll never get too old for that shit. Cannon, a fan of great comedy and jokes, would have been laughing at that joke if he weren't for the fact he was concentrating on masturbating. He thought about erections the same way he did fresh-baked apple pie. Hey, when's the next time there'll be this hot pie cooling on a windowsill? I better commence to masturbate. He didn't want to waste that hot and ready cock of his. The riders were just hanging in the rafters, wiping off their bellies. Stern was out cold on the floor, and Howie Mandel sat there giggling in that high-pitched voice he used in the Bobby cartoons. He was covered in the kind of feces you can only encounter in a campground outhouse. Just as Nick was coming, Sharon Osborne. It's funny, I put Sharon here, she's a friend of mine. Sharon Osborne, a past judge of America's Got Talent, walked in. She scanned the room and said, this reminds me of an Aussie's honeymoon, except nobody's dead. <laughs> they all had a hearty laugh together. Guys, Nick said, I really think I'm going to like it here. Two minutes, guys, said the stage manager, barging in. Where had all the time gone? That's when they all gathered together, went out, and had a terrible televised talent show. 
the kind that Mike Kaplan should be ashamed to have appeared on. Chris Fairbanks. Thanks, buddy. Where's Jim or Chris? I need Jim or Chris. Oh, we got a Chris Sharpentier right there. Clap your hands for Chris Sharpentier. Uh, Peter woke, as he did every day, with Tinkerbell trying to trying with all her might to stretch his waistband enough to get a peek. He slapped her away like an annoying mosquito. Get a life, bitch. <laughs> his first words of the day. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Peter finishes the last sip of imaginary beer from the last from last night. Another day of this bullshit, he complains aloud as he looks over Neverland, finishing his piss. <clears throat> as he tucks away his always, always hard cock. Uh, sorry, that part really never had, doesn't have anything to do with the story. Uh, <laughs> Neverland and all its wonder had somehow started to lose its luster for Peter. Sure, flying around and hanging with his boys was fun. But really, how long could you do that before other things start to look attractive? Things like owning a home, or a boat, going on vacation, or Hook's right-hand man, Smee. As hard as he tried, it's all, it's all that Peter could ever think about. How Smee's bald head would look resting on his belly. <laughs> or how his rough pirate hands would feel stroking his hair and face. There was just something about that weasel that got Peter so fired up, he decided to fly over to Hook's ship and see if he could get a peek of Smee sleeping, or maybe showering, or maybe just sitting there. It didn't matter. Peter just needed to see him. <laughs> Swooping over and under clouds and leaving a trail of pre-cum behind him, <laughs> like breadcrumbs for the Lost Boys. <laughs> Peter finally arrived at Hook's ship. <laughs> slowly peeking, <laughs> slowly peeking into Smee's, <clears throat> sorry, slowly peeking into Smee's room, Peter got a lot more than he expected. In fact, he got an eyeful. You see, just as Peter's head had come into frame, Smee had released a, a cum load so powerful a novice would have assumed it came from one of the cannons on board. <laughs> oh, fuck! Schmeez shouts as he saw, uh, as soon as he sees Peter and quickly starts to rearrange and shuffle all the papers on his desk with one hand while putting away his still rigid peg leg with the other. <laughs> and all the commotion it was lost on Smee that the very person he had been jerking off to had showed up right as he was coming. But it was... <laughs> but it wasn't lost on Peter. <laughs> Who could see with his good eye, because the other one was slowly fusing shut with Smee's manhood drying. Anyway, with his non-coming good eye, Peter could see that Smee had been pleasing himself to hand-drawn pictures of he and Peter kissing. <laughs> Peter reached out and grabbed Smee by the wrist. All at once, Smee stopped trying to hide his shame, and the warmth of Peter's hand 
put him in a different place. A place he hadn't been since Janae died. But that's another another story. They looked into each other's eye, or eye, in the case of Peter, who still become... Anyway. They looked into each other's eyes, and they laughed and laughed. Peter flew into the window, and he fell asleep inside of Smee's rough pirate hands. Thank you so much. Chris Charpentier. Where's Jim Hamilton at? Your final competitor, Jim Hamilton! Okay. Thank you, Brian. Doing well. Thank you. Uh, all right. Two planes collided in the sky. The debris from the crash rained down in the schoolyard as the young Latino boy watched in horror. The foreshadowing was as thick as the Big Bopper's dick. But fuck that kid. The story is about a man and his trombone. Richie Rosenberg was a Jewish kid. Maybe? All he ever wanted was to play the trombone like his hero. Google famous trombone player. (laughs) Young Richie made his way up the ranks of the cutthroat world of tromboning, finally working his way up to playing with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Every member of the band had a nickname. Bruce was the boss. Stephen Van Zandt was Miami. The next Lambert was a horror murderer. <laughs> Richie needed a nickname, and somebody decided on La Bamba for reasons I didn't have time to look into. <laughs> While touring with the boss, La Bamba fucked bitches on the regular. But was that enough? Nope. <laughs> Not for La Bamba. He had an insatiable appetite for all things bitches, especially relating to the fucking of said bitches. He then got a job playing trombone for a late night with Conan O'Brien, and even more bitches, and more fucking, but it was never enough. Not for La Bamba. He needed more bitches. But how many bitches? He'd gone through thousands of bitches, and yet it was never enough. La Bamba fell into a deep well of depression. Even his loud clothing couldn't drown out the screams of needing bitches. He was so depressed that he even agreed to do a show called Competitive Erotic Fan Fiction. Sure, the show was beneath him. But superstar comedian Jim Hamilton had asked him to do it. So of course he would. Jim Hamilton and Obama were both slumming it, but they could write it off on their taxes. Jim Hamilton read his obviously brilliant story, and LaBamba accompanied him on trombone. The crowd nearly orgasmed from laughter. Nobel Peace Prizes and MacArthur Genius Grants were handed out that night. The story was so good, Jim Hamilton won an Olympic silver medal in the long jump. This was a once-in-a-lifetime moment, like seeing Buddy Holly, Big Bopper, and Richie Valens together in concert. Jim Hamilton and La Bamba on stage together. Who could believe it? The members of the audience would tell their kids about this night if they hadn't all been rendered sterile by the hilarity. <laughs> After the 
the show, Jim Hamilton and La Bamba could have fucked tons of bitches. Jim Hamilton did, of course. But La Bamba yearned for something more. The usual types of bitches, like super hot and female, just wasn't going to cut anymore. La Bamba needed a new type of bitch, and that bitch's name was Brian Cook. The deep-voiced, red-bearded, real man that introduced the comedy savant Jim Hamilton and stirred something in La Bamba that he had never felt before. After the show, Brian Cook, clearly starstruck from having just met Jim Hamilton, and <laughs> said, thanks for doing the show. Jim, cool as always, said, you're lucky to have me. Jim Hamilton, <laughs> Jim Hamilton, clearly not being at all on the autism spectrum, noticed the chemistry <laughs> between Brian Cook and La Bamba and introduced the two. They hit it off instantly. Fast forward to a year later, and Jim Hamilton, the same Jim Hamilton from earlier in the story, realized too late that he was about to write about Brian Cook's gross sex life, <laughs> and then uh, failed a little bit. Again. Jim Hamilton, you sit right there, Jim. Let's get all around two competitors back to the stage. Whoa. Jesus. All right, once again, I'm going to remind you of what everybody read, and then we'll be voting on a winner. We started with Paul Goebel with Gumby, then Chris Fairbanks with America's Got Talent, uh, Chris Charpentier with Hook, and finally Jim Hamilton with La Bamba. So, pick a favorite, starting with Paul Goebel, Gumby. That's much more than I deserve. <laughs> uh, Chris Fairbanks, America's Got Talent. Chris Charpentier, Hook. And Jim Hamilton, La Bamba. I believe that's Chris Charpentier with Hook. Your round two champion. Big round of applause for all of your competitors this evening. For yourselves for coming out. That does it for round two. To hear round one from this show, you can go back and download episode 149. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It's a big help as our positive comments. For more details on upcoming shows, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Cooking or the show at CE Fanfic. See you next time. Now leaving Nerdist.com.